Hello, and welcome to Writer's Group Therapy. I'm Tom. And I'm Roshni. We're writers helping writers with whatever writing ailments you might have. Whether it's related to your craft or your career, we can help. Are you ready for your session? The The doctors doctors are are in. in. Today on Writer's Group Therapy, we welcome a very special guest, producer and screenwriter Ed Solomon. Ed is known for blockbusters like Men in Black, Charlie's Angels, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. His latest show, Full Circle, featuring Claire Danes, Dennis Quaid, and Timothy Oliphant, is streaming on Max. Welcome to the show, Ed. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Let me just start off by saying, like, I love comedy, like Men in Black and Charlie's Angels I must have watched like 50 million times, so... I'm quite excited to be able to talk with you today. What? About no craft. love for Bill and Ted? Come on. <laughs> I, you know, I actually never, I have not seen that one. So oh, thanks for calling me out, Tom. <laughs> so fun. They're all, they're all great movies. I'm really excited to have you here. Before we get into your latest show, which is really cool, Full Circle, uh, we always like to stop and, you know, kind of talk about how writers got started. So we know you started as a playwright and a stand-up comic in the early days. What drove you into that? What, what was the impetus? What was your inciting event, so to speak? And how did you uh, grow into the screenwriter you are today? I would say the same character trait slash flaw that keeps me going now. Some, well, this is going to sound really crazy because it doesn't sound like the math will work. But I realized I sold my first joke in 1979, which means in, and of course it was toward the end of 79. So the it gives me, a, it's a way to cheat the math, but so I've been writing for six in six different decades, which is wow. crazy for me. Oh my word! I was, yeah, bonkers. But what keeps me going is really the thing that got me started, which is this combination of I would say ambition and insecurity. I think <laughs> I know truly. I do. I think when I was in college, actually starting before that, in high school, I had all these friends who were unbelievably talented actors, musicians, singers, dancers. And I didn't, I didn't feel I fit, fit in and I wanted to. And the only thing none of them did was, hey, they didn't have a writer. And I think I'd always wanted to write. My dad used to, sometimes he worked at a company called Sylvania in Northern California. And sometimes he'd go down to LA as a consultant because they had some Sylvania or Motorola product in a police car, let's say. And he'd go down and represent the company. He'd always come back with a script because I think he knew I was interested in that. And around high school, I started trying to write stuff, but mostly truly, honestly, insecurity and, and ambition, wanting to be liked and accepted by my friends and then wanting to do something that I felt like was on par enough for them to accept me. I'm not saying this is a good way to do it. In fact, I've had to unwind a lot of habits that are based on getting the approval of others. That's been a lifetime work to try to figure out what it is that I write like, and I would like to write and who I am as a writer and not be so attuned to what do I think someone else might like me more for. And that's that's my struggle. Then in college... I was having a pretty tough personal time and I weirdly started writing jokes then 
and I guess it was a way of dealing with the whatever angst and trouble I was going through at the time. I was 18, 19. And I went to the comedy store at the beginning of 79, I think it was. No, it was, it was the beginning of late. It was fall of 79 because I was just a sophomore. And I overheard a comedian named Jimmy Alec say to somebody else, Jimmy Walker, who was well-known at the time, is often looking for writers. And Jimmy Walker performed that night. And I had known him as an actor on a TV show, Good Times, which was yeah. a 70s TV show. So I went up to him. And I was like, just barely 19. And I was like, I, I hear you're looking for writers. And he said, you know, we're always looking for writers. He pat me on the head and he gave me somebody's address. His manager, a guy named Gene Bronstein. Um, I wrote him, I typed, went back to my dorm room and typed up a bunch of jokes and with a cover letter, Dear Mr. Walker. No, it was Dear Mr. Bronstein. Enclosed, enclosed, please find 22 jokes for your and Mr. Walker's perusal. And then sincerely, Ed Solomon. And then, I don't know, like... Three weeks later, I got a check in the mail. They bought two jokes. They paid me a hundred bucks, which is, which was wow. more that's than they usually pay. Yes, yeah. normally twenty five bucks a joke. That's what I would get later on moving forward for people. Um, but they were, you know, they were trying to go like, "Keep going, kid." It was sort of their idea. And yeah. so I wrote jokes. Then I started doing some stand up because I got the nerve to finally at UCLA with a bunch of friends, including Ryan Rowe, guy who I wrote Charlie's Angels with, a really brilliant, lovely, funny person. Um, and a few bunch of others. Shane Black was in the this group, the comedy club, and a lot of Jim Hertzfeld, who wrote Meet the Parents. Um, a lot of a lot of people were just kind of finding their voices in that, that group and still hang out to this day on Zoom since COVID and sometimes in person. And I... Um, the, the way the comedy club used to work is it would be student comedians and then a professional headliner. So the, for 50 bucks, we'd pay someone. We had Jerry Seinfeld. We had, you know, you name it. I mean, we had him, Bob Saget. We had Mike Binder. And one day we had Gary Shandling. And this was in March of 1980. And um, after this, sh I had done a set just before Gary. And he did his big, long set. And he said, hey, would you be interested in writing? Uh with me. And I was like, yeah, sure. And he and I went down to this restaurant in Westwood called The Good Earth. I remember also that Albert Brooks was dining there that night. And Gary was like, hmm. I want to talk to Albert Brooks. And he even said to me, <laughs> I want to be Albert Brooks. That's what I want to do. I want to make oh movies gosh. like Albert Brooks. I know. It's pretty funny. So long wow. ago. So young. And then um, I started writing jokes with Gary, for Gary. And then I started writing plays at UCLA. And I wasn't, I couldn't get into the screenwriting department. I wasn't, a, I couldn't get into, I'm sorry. I couldn't get into any screenwriting classes because I was not a film major, but they would let me take playwriting classes. So I wrote plays for, in college and took classes and couldn't really get any performed in any big official way. So we would just mount them in student capacities just to get them up and see what became of them. You know, I guess ostensibly learn from them, but really it was just to get your work out. Again, ambition and insecurity. And one of the plays was performing, and Gary Shandling said, I have a friend who writes 
TV and he's producing a TV show and I'd like you guys to meet. And I invited him to one of these plays and I gave him a list of jokes that I'd written. I invited him to the play. His name's Mark Sodkin. I was speaking to Mark four days ago. Uh, but this was, you know, 19, I guess this is now in 1981. Mm-hmm. Mark came to see this play I wrote and hired me as a staff writer on Laverne and Shirley. Mm. And I wrote, I'd spent my senior year working on Laverne and Shirley, well, the back, back half of my senior year, um, not knowing a thing about what I was doing, really being, I think, thrown in over my head, not not really having the skills to do what that job really entailed. Didn't get hired back onto another show, or Mark didn't take me onto another show of his, and none of the other writers I met took me onto another show, which I felt was an incredible shaming failure and an embarrassment because I thought, oh, God, I'm my worst nightmare. I'm like a flash in the pan, aren't I? And scrambled around, and thank God I didn't get hired on another sitcom. Thank God, because I wouldn't have written Bill and Ted, that movie you haven't seen, and I wouldn't... (laughs) It's okay. I've only seen it three times in my entire life, so I'm only three ahead of you. So if you can, <laughs> you can watch it four times in a row, oh, no, I won't make you do that. I won't even know. How can I make you do that? Imagine if I somehow came through the computer and went <laughs> a thousand miles, the distance between us, and somehow made you watch a, a movie. Like some I, do, great... I do need to watch it because people quote it a lot. So I need to at least mm-hmm. know where the references are from. So yeah, I mean, you didn't expect the one of the writers of it to just show up and crash through your window <laughs> with like fire. You will watch this. You will watch it. The the significance of Bill and Ted is so much more than just Bill and Ted. It's it's that you you brought Keanu Reeves onto the scene. That's the, Fair the enough. key there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I love those guys. Keanu and Alex are mm-hmm. amazing. They're great guys. I mean, they're. They're really, and they're good friends. And I mean, I'm, I'm really close with Alex. We, we are in um, touch all the time. Keanu and I, we, we've done three of these movies together. And so we see each other during then, but they're great guys. They're really great guys. I honestly, when I say couldn't happen to nicer guys, I, I really mean it. Good, good people. Anyway, anyway, that's a long way of saying, <laughs> had, I, had I actually had success on Laverne and Shirley, I'm, I'm 99% certain I would have been a burned out. TV writer by my mid thirties. And I don't think I would have had any longevity in my career. I owe, and I really mean this, this is serious. I, I think I, if we're talking about years, cause it does seem like a long time, doesn't it? But um, I owe that to having failed a lot in many of my aspirations and having learned a lot from those failures and having vowed to somehow keep going um again ambition i guess ambition and insecurity but just i gotta keep going i gotta figure out what i learned from that i can't let this be my end and um, yeah that's it probably a longer answer than you had <laughs> no that's amazing that's i did my entire so career cool. in real time sorry <laughs> that's cool that's so cool i mean and speaking of uh, you know, serendipity and how long your career has been from 79 to we're totally dating this episode now, 2024. That is a very long time to be in Hollywood, stay in Hollywood. What have you seen like craft wise, like writing trends and stuff like that? What have you seen like change and evolve? And like, what have you seen stay the same? Oh, what an interesting question. The business has changed multiple, multiple, multiple times. 
the the industry, you know, interestingly, you know, I mean, we all read about the way that business is changing and the old trope of studio executives come and go, come and go, come and go. It's so funny how many times I've just watched somebody else take the job of another person. I've had the same job. <laughs> These people just switch in and out. I, I've had one project that had three different like studio heads just during that project. It's so funny. Wow. But, you know, the industry's changed greatly as I think you can, you know, probably read about and get more information than I'm able to convey in an, in an articulate way. But it's changed a lot. I don't think it's, I think it's in a, it's in a bad ebb. <laughs> it was in a good ebb for a while. There was, you know, I was calling it the others where I wasn't calling it. I was calling it among other people, the a kind of golden age that was happening. Mm -hmm. That sort of kind of imploded. Um, I think when I first started out, movie studios, jobs were to make really interesting movies and then sell those movies. And they made a lot of money doing it. And movies were one of America's biggest exports to the world as an industry. And people were making decisions based on gut reactions. Studio heads, unfortunately mostly men at the time, but um, still there were women studio heads as well, but would make decisions based on what their, their gut would feel, which by the way is how a, a person makes a decision as to whether they're gonna go to a movie. You could, all you want, weigh intellectually in your brain, well, I like this actor this much, and I like stories that are about twisty crimes, and I love stuff set in Chicago, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, what you'll go to is something that you just feel emotionally like, hey, I want to go see that, actually. When you're flicking through Netflix or whatever you're streaming and you're trying to figure out which of the 88,000 things to watch. It's usually just an emotional thing you finally end up going with after scrolling for the entire length of a movie trying to figure out which one. <laughs> right. But Absolutely. There, I, I feel like there's been three stages. There's been, when I started, it was people making decisions based on their gut, which I think was the time movies were actually the most profitable. Then that was followed by bean counters, human beings, but accountants basically working out in their head with their calculators and computers sort of formulas this actor is worth this much overseas and this actor is worth that much overseas and this kind of concept with this actor is worth this much and that's how they were starting to decide they started bringing the marketing team in with them when they started making decisions about what movies to green light they were no longer going with their gut and movies became less profitable then we're in this third wave now, which is algorithms and metrics. It's all about that. And it isn't working. They're in less profit than they've ever been. Now, by the way, when I say less profit, they're still able to pay their CEOs and executives <laughs> and, 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 and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. They're not hurting that bad. But... They're making less and worse movies. And 
Mm-hmm. It's because I think they do not under... The more the business changes, it's now basically tech run. You know, you have to look back and go, okay, movies were run by people who wanted to make movies back mm. in the day, so to speak. Then they got purchased by other corporations, Seagram's Gin, let's say, that bought um, Universal. You know, you can go down the whole list. Mm-hmm. Sony that bought what's now Sony, but it was Columbia at the time, etc. Then it was more communications companies, Comcast, AT&T, etc. And now it's tech companies and companies like Amazon, Apple. These people don't give a crap about the quality of the film. They just want content, they call it, which is a word I yeah. hate. It's strange That's- because the industry is blown up because of the technolog- technology of filmmaking becoming less expensive, that they're actually, the world in general, is making more and more movies every year, but the studios are making fewer and fewer movies. But they're they're yeah. putting more money into fewer movies to make these billion dollar hopefully they're trying to make billion dollar franchise movies yeah that's all it is is trying to make tentpole so to speak you know Mm -hmm. movies and um you know the democratization of the means to produce and even the means to distribute is a good thing for most people on the planet because it gives people who wouldn't have been able to afford to exercise their vision or make mistakes or try something out. It gives them a chance to try something out, which leads to Roshni's second question, which <laughs> is, seriously, what has changed creatively about it? Yeah. Which actually, not as much. Filmic language and audiences learn. I mean, I mean filmic language changes as audiences learn. So um, this is before my time, but like in the in the 50s, you would get a, you know, character on screen gets a phone call. Hello, it's Mr. Burns. Hey, Mr. Burns, what do you need? You need me to go to the pier? All right, I'll see you at the pier. What time? Eight o'clock. I'll see you there. Cut to car driving, cut to pulling up at the pier, cut to getting out of the car, cut to walking up. Mr. Burns, how are you? Good to see you. Versus now, which is phone rings, cut to the pier, Talking to Mr. Burns, we as an audience have already, we know enough that we've already filled in everything else. Oh, they said, meet me at the pier. Now we're at the pier, etc. So there are certain things that are just film language that have changed. Mm-hmm. Visual language has evolved, obviously, and it's evolved with technology. But just as the advent of computers, it's hard to say that because when we had it, or let's say even word processors, you'd think there'd be a lot more great novels, but there aren't. And I think part of the reason is the hard thing about writing is not the technology or access to the technology or utilizing the technology. The hard thing about making a movie even is not simply access to technology, although that is an impediment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's why you have so many more movies being made, but their quality level is, you know, it's still the whole 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of it's garbage. You know, you give someone the tools, they can make something, but is it something anyone's going to want to watch? Yeah, well, the, the hard thing is figuring out who you are, what you want to write about, and how to mine it out of yourself, and how to work as hard as you need to work in order to make it actually something of value. That's why. 
that 80-20 rule hasn't changed. Which actually gives me hope for the future, what with the rise of AI and all. Like, it's still good storytelling still matters. Like, I used to be a songwriter, NSAI, National Songwriters Association International, has a tagline, it all starts with a song. And I always thought of that in writing. Like, it, it, it all starts with good craft. So I'm, I'm actually very happy to hear that that has not changed and probably, fingers crossed, will never change. I I hope that's right, you know, and if... You know, if AI can really write a story that's better than what a human being can write and it really is as meaningful and moving as something a human being can write, well then, you know, more power to it. I don't I don't see that happening, certainly not soon, but you know. Yeah. That's a real serious conversation. Uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's speaking of serious, I'm gonna segue there is you know, you've written some really cool stuff. Men in Black, Bill and Ted, we talked about, um, you know, these are uh, Charlie's Angels are action, you know, comedy kind of. There's a lot of humor and heart in those kind of films. And your latest project uh, for HBO Max or, or Max uh, Full Circle is kind of a different kind of story. It's a little dark. There's a lot of flawed characters. How did you make that transition from, you know, telling jokes and 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 writing these, you know, exciting, fun screenplays to writing something so serious and and kind of dark when i first started out i wanted to be a comedy writer and a comedian and was so excited that i was getting some opportunity that i just kind of fell for it and went in whatever direction anyone would have me in but i began to work with some people that i recognized were really geniuses and really brilliant and really funny. And I knew enough about comedy to know that I'll never be like any of those people. Never. I just can't do that. I'm pretty good. I mean, I can get, I know, I think, I know what I think is funny. I, I know how to make a situation that might lend itself to being funny, but I can't get to those incredibly great jokes, incredibly brilliant kinds of comedy that, people I really admire can do. So I knew that it was going to be a matter of time for me before it kind of, my energy, again, to use the two words that seem to be the theme of the day, insecurity combined with ambition, kind of ran out and I just didn't have the energy or the opportunities to keep going. And I knew that, you know, there's nothing more pathetic than a, a middle-aged comedy writer who's just not that funny and trying to keep doing the same thing they were doing, man or woman, you know. And I didn't want that to be me, but I also didn't have the skill set to do anything else. Though what I did have was interest because when I go to a movie or when I read a book, what I love are sort of darker more human crime stuff. I love a good comedy too, by the way. Nothing, nothing's <laughs> better. Somebody making me laugh. I mean, there's no greater feeling, you know. But I, I just had to try for about a couple of decades as often as I could to write something and fail. I wouldn't say fail as often as I could. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to succeed. I just happened to fail a lot. I failed a lot and I you know, I kept trying to go, okay, what did I learn from that? That didn't really work. That's not up to my standard as a viewer. 
I would not want to do like that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And thankfully, I had had enough success in these other genres that I could at least make my living. And there was about 15 years where I let that actually get me off track. I started to do what was easy to me instead of what was really pulling me. But once I got back into, no, 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 I'm going back to what is really pulling me, that was what actually gave me the longevity. Being confident enough to write from a place where I wasn't entirely confident, if that makes sense. Mm, Being able to get, yeah, get outside of my comfort zone and go toward what I'm intrigued with, interested in, what my my sense of being a human being is yearning to understand about other people, about the world. What areas am I wanting to explore? What am I curious about? What am I excited about even? And that saved me. That's probably, well, actually, it's actually almost mid-career now. I mean, you know, I even sat down with my agents. <laughs> I just signed <laughs> new agent. And I sat down with my agent. It was 2007. And I said, uh, I said, <laughs> all right, I know you just signed me. And I know, like, you're all excited about, because, like, I can, at that time, I could make a lot of money doing a certain type of movie. Mm-hmm. But I don't, um, but I need, I'm going to be older. And that was the first I saw one of their eyes glaze over. And I Uh-oh. need to be doing work that, yeah, that, grown-ups can do because I want to be in this for the long haul and I'm willing to scrape and claw and I'm willing to put myself in all sorts of uncomfortable situations I said I want to go back to working for scale I want to like literally cut my fee by every you know everything that wouldn't scale and I want you can't get me jobs that will be things that people wouldn't think of me for but you can get me in the room and just let me either get the job or not and one of the there were two agents in the room. One of them I quite literally never heard from again. Literally, <laughs> oh, no. not only that, he was supposedly my agent, and up until about four years ago, he still was like CC'd on the various in memos and information about me. Although he was, he so much was out of my life after that meeting that about six months later, I was at a screening of a friend's film, and I was seated next to him, and he didn't even recognize me. <laughs> Oh, Sorry. no. Oh, wow. I made the poor man run for the hills, but good I on know. you for taking artistic risks. <laughs> it's the only way. I mean, it's yeah. any kind of calculated move. Um, I agree, there is a calculated move to that. But it's calcu- But the calculated move is, after some thought, I realized the only way to stay in this game is to take risks all the time and to not not take risks is the, actually the safe bet. Wow. Yeah, and this this latest project of yours, Full Circle, uh, definitely is a big risk because you, you basically um, have a, a stellar cast. You've got, you're working with Steven Soderbergh, and you've created a show about extremely real, flawed people. It's very different from stuff you've done in the past, but it works extremely well. Uh, how, how did you come up with the idea for that? And what was working with Steven like? Was he involved in the creation or was that you and you found him and that kind of stuff? I know you worked with him before too, though. So, Yeah, he and I started working together about 10 years ago on an, a crime mystery thing that was on HBO called Mosaic. And mm-hmm. during that, we had originally written it to be a branching narrative show where you 
it's not a choose your own adventure, but depending on which character whose point of view you choose to view the film or from whose point of view, the, um, the story you see will be entirely different just based on the kind of subjective POV from which you're viewing it. I was really enjoying that. So I came up with another idea while we were doing it and I started writing it. Meanwhile, he wanted to do another movie which he pitched to me, which is what became No Sudden Move. And that was another, that was a spec script that I wrote, but I knew Stephen was going to be directing it. So that wasn't that big of a risk because I figured if, if he was in, then we had a good shot of it getting made. So I took some time away from Full Circle, but then I just kept going. Full Circle, and I know we've been talking about, yeah, I've been doing this professionally for a long time, but... Full Circle was a spec script, and it was a 586-page spec script. And it was, I'd started it during Mosaic, which means it hadn't come out yet, which means it was a, a genre that I wasn't known for, and it was a medium that it was originally going to be branching narrative. It was a medium that didn't even exist yet. It probably still doesn't exist, actually. And, you know, I, I just like... I want to get this right. I want to see if I can get it right. And I was thinking of the movies that I've and TV shows that I've been involved with this decade. If if I go back, I'm thinking of. So in ten years, it's been the two Now You See Me movies, which were not on spec. Those were jobs. The first Now You See Me was almost in production, and I was it's hard to do a rewrite. The second one was a, a job. But the other four things, which was Bill and Ted Face the Music, that was a 14-year attempt to get made, but that was a spec script. No Sudden Move was a spec script. Mosaic was a spec. Mosaic was like 300 pages before HBO picked it up. And Full Circle was a spec, 500 plus. So I think, you know, for me, it's been, I just finished a spec right now, a pilot that I'm pretty excited about. I think, you know, Taking chances continually, um, as we were talking about before. But Stephen is an incredible person to work with, per your question, on so many levels. And not just with me as a writer, but I watch him with crew. It's very inspiring because, aside from the fact that he also does something that no one else does, he's the cinematographer, he's the camera operator, he's also the editor as well as the director, so you have a very lean, very fast-moving set. But the thing he does that I've seen no other person do as much as him is he trusts everyone. Once he's cast you, it's yours to screw up. And what I mean by that, cast in any position, production designer, you know, costume, writer, actor, he trusts that you will bring all of your professionalism and all of your skills and all of your talent and that you will be in charge of your domain. And when somebody does that, you're damned if you're not going to do it. You're going to work three times as hard to get it right and to show up with your A-game. And that was really both instructive as well as, as I said, ins inspirational really because so often you're working with people in this business who... The, the subtext to everything they're saying is, if I only had the time, I could do your job as well, but I just don't have the time, so can you write this for me? But the truth is, 
He's going, you're the writer. What, that's your domain. You're the art director. That's your domain, you know. And then ultimately he makes the decisions, but he has to make less decisions that are, the decisions aren't as hard, I guess is a better way to put it, because he knows he's getting the best work from people. And I, I really love working with him. And I think he's a, you know, we're going to do another thing together and we're going to, um, you know, he's, I mean, I, I'll always, I always want to have one thing with him, even if it's just in the back of both of our plates, you know, or the back of the burners or whatever you call it, the back burner. But just because he's just such a great guy to work with, calm on set, the days move quickly, everyone's treated with dignity, and uh, and he's fun to hang out with. <laughs> There's no no downside. It's like the perfect trifecta i think you said four things actually so yeah, quadrifecta quadrifecta. yeah i was like oh my gosh like to not run into egos on set to have a smooth work day to like oh my gosh like oh that's heaven for anybody i think on a set because it's such a charged environment you yeah, mentioned right? the branching narrative thing and i did read about that so 500 some pages if you had done the branching narrative it's a six full circles a six episode limited series right i don't are you doing yeah. a second season uh, we we might. I don't know. Okay. I don't know if that people saw it or not. I actually have no idea. We're we're we'd be open to doing it if they if if uh, it came about. Um, okay. So if you did do the branching narrative, how many more extra episodes would that have been? What our plan was was I had written so I'd really originally written the whole thing as branching, and the idea was mm -hmm. to write it as branching and then write it as linear, design it from the beginning to be both, but. Then we recut it into six. I mean, I rewrote it into six linear shows. And then I wrote a separate 150 page branching script that was entirely different. And when we were going to shoot both, the idea was we're going to use the same set, same actors, but Steven's going to use entirely different cameras and an entirely different shooting technique and sound design and art design, but the same sets, same locations as, as well. Um, and so what we were going to do was do our regular shooting day finish and Stephen finishes fairly early. So let's say we finished five, six hours, then we're going to switch cameras and then do the scenes again, but with this entirely different take on the same stuff. And then at a certain point when we got closer to shooting, we went, can we really do this? Is that too much to ask of everyone, including ourselves? And we were like, yeah, full circle is already pretty complex as it is, mm -hmm. like, why make it, so, it's so hard just making one thing good. Why, mm -hmm. why quintuple our difficulty, by, you know, make it just by orders of magnitude. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Do you want to do a branching narrative for a future project, maybe a comedy or something less intense? You know, I'm, I'm always up for stuff. I'm not sure the forum works, you know, having spent eight years trying it, you know, really working hard in it. I'm not sure the form works for what we are looking for in entertainment now, especially when we have gaming. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's true. And they're very different activities. You know, in narrative, you're sort of projecting, projectively identifying, I guess, or you're you're projecting onto a character and you're sort of moving on their, their journey. Um, in gaming, most of the time, not always, but it's... it's um, it's it's you. You're the sort of central character. Now there is more story games and those are that's evolving, but it feels to me like the gaming industry is gonna move more towards storytelling 
more than story industry can move toward gamifying itself. I could totally see how uh, full circle could, uh, you know, uh, be applied to the branching narrative because it's a uh, it's a very intertwined story with from you know CC Pounder's character, uh, the 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 son's the son's journey, the other son's journey, uh, you know, the people all dealing with their past in different ways and trying to interact, and it, it can go in so many different directions. I think the way you wrote it, it worked really well you know, as a linear story, but I could see how it would have worked well as a branching story. I appreciate that. Well, I think that informed it. The branching part informed the linear in a pretty significant way. And I don't think it would have been the same had I not done the branching. And I'm really glad I did it just because, again, you learn so much by doing this stuff. And I have so many, I've written so many pages in my life. And most of them are wasted, so to speak by objective standards, meaning they don't show up on screen. So mm. I don't, you know, I sort of, it's the turtle theory. I work as hard as I can on everything I do, but I know only a certain percentage of, A, what I write that I like is going to get made. And But more importantly, most of what we write doesn't end up in the script anyway. It just mm. doesn't, and, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope people will take in a uh, full circle and, and, uh, and experience it for themselves because it's a really it's a really great show. It's intense, and uh, some great performances. You have a great cast. The cast is amazing. Yeah, yeah. they're really terrific. And uh, if if people want to, besides watching your show on Max, which they can all uh, go find, uh, if they want to find follow you, are you on social media? Do you uh, do you? Tweet I was on X? Twitter. I was on Twitter for quite a long time. I'm kind of I. To be honest, I feel that that talk about an ecosystem that's gotten soiled. <laughs> really, it was a really rancid place. Occasionally, I'm on Blue Sky, but uh, and I really, really loved Twitter when it was really Twitter, and I was meeting so many interesting people. I met the person I'm married to now on Twitter. Wow! And who I was? Oh, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And um, and I met so many friends, like really good friends. I met through Twitter, and I learned a lot, and I'm. It, but it's just a cesspool now. It's just really <laughs> unfortunate. You can't trust any of the information. It's all the algorithm is, you know, so against, for, you know, free thought in any kind yeah. of meaningful way. So and, no. Uh, so the answer is no. Don't look for you on on social media. I mean, good. I mean, this guy. I I I I've threatened. I've been on Instagram, but I've never posted anything. So okay. yeah, I'm not. If people want to listen to Word by Word, which is a, um, there are these Zoom webinars I do with the Blacklist with oh. Franklin Leonard and with, um, you know, Megan and Claire and Elisa and Kate, who are the people that work on the Blacklist. We've been doing interviews with writers and conversations and there is a Patreon. Oh, by the way, I should say, we are trying to raise money and still are for all, it's all for charity. Um, it's free to watch. If you want to watch the Zoom, the live Zooms, we do them as live Zooms. Oh. And then if you want to see back episodes, there's a Patreon like for like 10 bucks a month. Oh, that's cool. But then all the money goes to charity. To It was going to the strike funds and Teamsters, IATSE, uh, support staff, and, uh, and writers who were struggling. We'll and find so, out. We'll put a link in the notes to that. That is amazing. That's yeah, the cool. Patreon, yeah, it's patreon.com, then word by word show. I believe is the way to get, you know, we've had insane, wonderful guests like 
I mean, the most incredible writers um, talking process, kind of like we're doing here, but 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 better writers. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show. This has been really yes. great. It's great to meet you and hear about your story and your, your projects. Everyone else, thanks for listening. Uh, do follow us on social media at WG Therapy and visit writersgrouptherapy.com for more episodes. Otherwise, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.